Members, there is a tie and on conscious, I am voting for the motion. I support the motion. The amendment passes. Province columnist Mike Smith. And I'm Vancouver Sun columnist Rob Shaw. It's time to go in the house and go inside BC politics. All right, sounds like pandemonium in the legislature there. Welcome to another podcast. And uh, Rob Shaw, what we just heard off the top there was the aftermath of the John Horgan government actually losing a vote in the B.C. legislature. You don't see governments lose votes in the House very often. How did this go down? Yeah, there's a crazy little bit of drama in the legislature. Not consequential in the large scheme of things in that the LNG legislation we talked about last week, the one with all the tax breaks for LNG Canada, still goes forward, still going to pass because the Liberals and NDP have got together to force this thing to pass. But what you heard there was one amendment on the bill that the Liberals put forward actually got through. And the reason that it got through is because the Greens, the three Green members, got up and walked out of the chamber. And the numbers in that chamber are so tight, it changed so quickly that it ended up being a tie. And you heard in that audio, there's a Joan Isaacs, who's the Liberal MLA, and she's the committee chair at that particular moment in the House. So it goes to a tie. And then she says that she's voting her conscience and she's going to vote in favor of her liberal colleagues. And the amendment passes. So basically, government lost control. Their bill was kind of forcibly amended on them. And uh, and they were forced to then support this amended bill, even though they didn't like it, or else their whole legislation would have collapsed. So in the large scheme of things here... It's mostly symbolic. It's an embarrassment for the New Democrats to lose a vote like that. It's a message from the Greens, a little bit of a muscle flex there. And it's a symbolic victory for the Liberals. All they really won here is that one of their old LNG pieces of legislation doesn't get repealed. That's what the amendment was. What's the, what's the impact of that? What is that? Basically, their argument is that this old legislation mandates disclosure to the public of any agreement that the government signs with LNG companies. So back in the day, it was Petronas and Pacific Northwest LNG. And this legislation said if the government signs a deal, has to be public. It's project development agreements. And by keeping it in place, the liberals are arguing, well, that forces government to be more transparent. The government's okay. saying, that's not true. We're, we already put the agreement with LNG Canada online. Again, mostly symbolic, embarrassing, a little bit of flexing by the Greens, a little bit of the nose thumbing by the liberals, pretty much 
you know, the way this legislature works. Most OK, maybe kind of a symbolic victory for the liberals. It does not bring the government down, though. Right. I mean, this is the government lost a vote. It doesn't trigger an election or anything because it was not a confidence vote. That's right. Just a, not a confidence vote. And even if the whole bill failed. Yeah. It, that wouldn't have brought the government down either because confidence votes, remember, we're all, generally are the budget and the throne speech and right. those already passed. Yeah. Uh, we talked about it in previous podcasts. The NDP sailing easy. They are an easy town for the rest of the year because they survived their confidence votes. But it's um, just shows you a little bit of like how the minority government is still obviously always a little bit shaky. Yeah. Um, you know, who knows what could happen in the days ahead if you have MLAs are missing in action or whatever. They're not at the house for whatever get reason. get stuck in the washroom at the wrong time. and They get sick. Yep. Somebody gets into some crazy scandal and is forced to resign or something. I mean, anything can happen. But oh, typically, though, I mean, even though the government loses this one, they still have that two-seat edge overall in their alliance with the Green Party, which should keep them in power at least through the end of this session and then beyond. There's a, there's a little bit of discussion now about whether Joan Isaacs made the proper move as the committee chair. And there's a suggestion that, you know, the legislature runs on these old rules, some of which aren't written down, called precedents, convention. And there is this idea that a speaker or a committee chair should generally, if there's a tie, vote to maintain the status quo or vote in favor of kind of the government continuing. And it's a question that's come up, Smitty, since the 2017 election, because we've often been talking about what happens if there's a tie here and Speaker Daryl Plekis has to break a vote. And the idea yeah. is, well, you know, maybe the speaker is going to have to side with the government because of convention. But we're realizing now in practice, when the fecal matter hits the quickly rotating device here at the legislature, convention doesn't mean a, a hill of beans when the speaker is on the chair. So I think there may be a little bit of a a sign here that if there ever is a tie break required, it's going to be up to whichever party happens to have that person in the chair, including the speaker, to basically vote however they want to vote on this thing. And in this case, it was the liberals and uh, they managed to win it. Okay. Interesting. So, yeah. An interesting moment. Another bizarre moment that we had uh, in the last week, and it wasn't in time for our podcast last week, so we'll pick it up this week, Smitty. The right to bear arms yeah. took off like a wildfire here at the legislature, became a huge issue. He wrote a column on it, uh, dominated the an entire day of the legislature and resulted in some changes this week. Uh, walk us through what happened there. Well, what happened was a senior member of the government staff was stopped in the hallway. She was wearing a, a sleeveless blouse and was told to cover up that women were not allowed to show bare arms, not just in the legislative chamber. We're not talking MLAs. We're talking actual staff and reporters in the hallway of the place. So she was told to cover up. And a lot of the women who work in the building were not happy about that. And there was a pretty spontaneous protest the next day where uh, largely led by uh, female women reporters, our colleagues in the press gallery said, we're not going along with this. And they all uh, came to work the next day with uh, sleeveless outfits on. <laughs> so um, it was an interesting uh, issue. And it, it's I always feel a little weird as a man talking about an issue that's uh, clearly a woman's women's issue. But I, I supported them. I mean, I, I supported the, our, our, our women colleagues in the press gallery. I mean, as soon as I heard about it, I thought, this is crazy. This is ridiculous. Are you kidding me? Are you going to you're going to tell women that 
they have to cover up in the hallway. I mean, what year is this? Well, it, well, yeah. let's listen to Shannon Waters, one of our press gallery colleagues from BC Today, explain uh, what she thought about this issue and why it, it really resonated for her. A lot of support. A lot of the 1950s called and they want their dress code back. Um, there have been a few people who suggested that maybe the women in the legislature should just dress exactly the way that men do um, to avoid all issues. Men are required to wear a collared shirt and a tie and a jacket in the hallways. Um, but women are not included specifically in the dress code. It was written before there were really a lot of women reporting on or working in the legislature, and so they were not included. There's a memo from the late 90s that says that women, or so we are told, I have not seen said memo, um, that says that women should wear business attire akin to what men do, and now we are going to have a discussion about what that means. So, yes, Mitty, the 1950s called and they want their dress code back. It's a great line. Um, But the idea, you know, being that there's this ancient memo from the 80s, maybe back when there was only a handful of of women here, uh, both in the gallery and as, you know, MLAs and staffers here. uh, And that it's the rules are old. They don't make sense. They're vague for women. And suddenly they're randomly enforced in the hallway one day uh, with no discussion. And people feel that's unfair. I think they have a total point on that. I think so, too. And I think that it was defused pretty quickly uh, by the speaker. And on the day the thing broke, Speaker Daryl Plekas put out a statement saying, look, this is what the rules are. And a lot of people read that memo and thought it's, it almost sounded like he was endorsing the current rules. But he also said, look, we're going to have a review of this. And then it was very quickly after that that they said that as they're doing this review, uh, sleeveless outfits are allowed for women's staff in the building and also which i think is good you know because you know a lot of the a lot of the women who are working in the building here when they when they came to work the next day with uh sleeveless outfits or whatever this is totally fine like i think most people look at it as what is a reasonable dress code for this place and i think there should be some a somewhat reasonable dress code people should dress professionally Mm -hmm. and but i don't think there's anything unprofessional at all about wearing some sort of a sleeveless uh, blouse or whatever. So uh, I thought it was, you know, they quickly, the stat, the uh, acting clerk of the place in and the speaker quickly set it straight after a one day protest. And I say, I say good for them. I say good for our colleagues in the press gallery for standing up for this for the women. Absolutely. Yeah. And the speaker, to his credit, you know, despite that initial statement, yeah. he acted very quickly. And his final ruling on this uh, is now that basically the security staffers here aren't aren't the police. They're not the fashion police anymore. They can't stop you and check your hemline. And there was one uh, outrageous example by green MLA Sonia Firstenow, who said that one of her staffers had been stopped and told that her skirt was clinging too tightly to her and she needed to have a slip underneath <laughs> it. Like it's 1902. Uh, and that's insane. And she raised yeah. that example as well. So the guards no longer are the police here. To I guess in their defense, they're simply enforcing ancient rules. But why it arbitrarily began out of nowhere, I, I have no idea. And then the speaker, to his credit, came up quickly and said, all right, no more fashion police. Everyone's professional here, you know, and, and off they go. I, don't, I, haven't, I haven't seen any examples of unprofessional dress attire in this building at all. I mean, I no. do have a bit of a problem that you record this podcast without pants on, but I think we've come <laughs> we've come to an understanding that that's just how you do your thinking, your best thinking. But other than that, like everyone here is is totally professional and and there are some just, you know, like um 
important issues to discuss here and the work's being done and i think the dress code was a ridiculous ridiculous decision for staff i'm gonna members. let the my the lack of pants just pass for now and just say that uh, <laughs> well you said that it frees your mind up to, to get all your best lines <laughs> yeah, all right up. okay uh just before we move on to this one i'll give a tip of the hat to kate ryan lloyd yep who is now the acting clerk of the legislature. She took over after Craig James was suspended with pay. He's still suspended with pay in the in the great uh, spending scandal here at the legislature. Kate Ryan Lloyd is a person that a lot of people here in the building have known for a long time, including both of us. Uh, really great reputation, very smart, uh, a woman, a woman of ter- terrific integrity. And I think she's doing a great job Yeah, in a as, tough as, situation. The, as the clerk in a very difficult spot. And maybe she should be made the permanent clerk, I think, in my opinion. I, I, and know, I think she handled this real well. I mean, she helped out. She helped out Plakas and stepped in here quickly. And I, and I bet you behind the scenes, she was saying there's no there's no reason to let this fester for days on end. Let's just deal with this right now. No, I think it was the, the worst and best of the building all in a couple of days. Yeah. You know, ancient yeah. rule combined with some quick modern sense. It's worth noting here that we now have, despite all the craziness that happens at the legislature and with the suspensions and stuff, um, it's the first time in the legislature's history that all the table officers in the in the building right now are women. There's a yeah, law clerk right. and there's a procedural clerk and there's yeah. the clerk of the house and there and it's uh, of course they wear those black judicial robes with the white collars, so the dress code isn't an issue for them. But I think modern professional attire for women was an issue that resonated with a lot of staff in this building yeah, and very quickly they they made uh, short work of fixing that a lot of other big important issues here got um pushed out of the way for at least a day because of some of those issues and one of them is the speculation tax the much maligned constant rolling i have said massive attacks that continues to to uh, squish its way into reality so there was a deadline of uh, of the basically the start of April, uh, the end of March, for people to fill their exemption forms out. And remember, in a stroke of genius government uh, bureaucracy, the government mailed out 1.6 million tax notices for the purpose of catching 32,000 speculators. And the remaining people were required to submit exemptions back. That's not exactly the best way to do it, but it was the only way government could think of to do it. So as of the most recent numbers, 94% of those 1.6 million people have submitted their exemptions. That means that once you subtract the 32,000 actual speculators, there's around 64,000 British Columbians who haven't exempted themselves and are about to get a tax notice in the mail for thousands of dollars potentially, depending on the value of your home that they're not supposed to get because of the way that this tax has been rolled out. Finance Minister Carol James says, you know, there's going to be a lot of leniency for these people. But at the same time, I have a feeling, Smitty, we're going to see some very angry folks in the next month or two suddenly get bills with dollar figures in it and go, what in the sweet baby Jeebus is this landing in my mailbox? You know, you know what? Um, of course, this applies to homeowners. Okay, so if you're a renter, of course, it doesn't apply to you. This is this tax is meant to capture people who own a home but just let it sit empty, yep. presumably as a store of wealth or as, as just basically kind of property speculation. And when the government brought it in, and they brought in this system where it was described by some as negative option billing, you have to fill out this form online, this exemption form, in order to not pay the tax. And the liberals tried to make a lot of hay about that, saying this is a really inefficient way to do this. There, people could maybe end up paying this tax 
unfairly or by mistake. And that could still potentially happen. Like you said, there's a, a very, what was it? 95% of 94%. Okay. Yep. So there's still a, a small minority of people who have not done this online fill up. And by the way, if you haven't done, if you're a homeowner and if you've not done this, if you've not uh, filled out this form, you should definitely look into it because you don't want to get dinged with these taxes because they can be very uh, heavy indeed. So the interesting thing though, is that the liberals tried to turn this into a big political issue for them. And one of their key key sort of points of attack on was this process for this opting out negative option opt out process. The government seems to have weathered it pretty well, I think. What, do you have any thoughts on that, Rob? I mean, oh, the, the politics of this thing, because I know the liberals have tried to make this a political issue. I think in some ways, the NDP have enjoyed the political optics of this thing as they watch the liberals kind of going to bat for homeowners and, and saying the tax is unfair. I think it is unfair in some cases. But I think in some ways, the the NDP are sitting back rather smugly and thinking they're liking the way this thing is whole, has rolled out. Yeah, the polling indicates that the tax is pretty popular. It, we thought it was going to be an issue in the Nanaimo by-election. Didn't resonate at all. I think the New Democrats feel that coupled with the larger foreign uh, buyer's tax, the all sorts of other tax measures that they've brought in, that the cooling of the housing market is enough to justify this, that this tax is working. Now, whether or not the spec tax is doing anything to cool the market, who knows, but the market is cooling anyways. And in the larger scheme of things, the NDP seem okay with it. I think the political risk is if one little old lady, you know, just imagine your favorite grandmother gets her tax bill in the mail in the next couple months and goes, oh, goodness me, writes a check, puts a couple of those wonderful homemade grandmotherly cookies in there, sends that check back to Victoria and pays the spec tax when she's not supposed to. Yeah. That will be a colossal embarrassment for the new Democrat government. Even one person mistakenly paying this bill because they don't, you know, old grandma didn't know how to get on the interwebs and she didn't fill out the form or whatever. Um, or other examples of, you know, um, somebody whose spouse has recently passed away, but they're still on title and they didn't submit the spec tax declaration and a lot of crying and Something tears. Like that'll probably happen. There, and I think there's a little risk to the NDP for that. But in yeah. the larger scheme of things, you, you're right, Smitty. They seem to have weathered it well. And it feeds into an almost class warfare issue that you and I have talked about in the past where the NDP are counting on people to say, oh, I'm sorry, you... You get a tax bill for your $2 million Vancouver home? Oh, boo-hoo, boo-hoo. And, yeah. and they like that. That fits yeah. to their base very well. And despite it being not particularly positive politics, it works well for the NDP. The, end, the Liberals are probably hoping that there, there's somebody out, is, there are some people out there who do end up getting dinged unfairly with this tax and then come forward publicly so they can use it as an example of, see, we told you so. Uh, some people are going to get burned by this tax. So if someone does come forward and they do end up paying the tax by mistake or whatever, you can bet that the government will quickly rectify that, though. They'll come back and say, that's OK. You know, there is an appeal process. So there is a refund process. We're not collecting. We don't want your money if you're not required to pay this tax. So the government will certainly be and will, will have their, their comeback on it. Um, but we'll see if that happens. I, I suspect, you know, it's you, you probably will see a couple of examples where somebody did end up getting getting dinged with this tax by mistake. Yeah. Um, but overall, I think the NDP, I agree with you, are, are happy with the way this thing is rolled out. And they don't think that it's got really good traction as an issue for the liberals like the liberals were hoping. And maybe it's actually in some ways turned into a net positive for the NDP. Another questionable public sympathy issue, Smitty, is ICBC. And there's changes, big changes the NDP have brought into ICBC, new caps on pain and suffering awards for minor injuries of $5,500. 
we're waiting to see, I guess, whether the public really is ticked off by that. We got news this week that the Trial Lawyers Association of BC, the lawyers that you see on the bus stops and on the billboards, you know, for auto and uh, personal injury insurance uh, um, awards and go to court, fight for your rights against ICBC. They're going to challenge government in court on a constitutional issue about this. Let's listen to David Eby talk about why he thinks his, uh, his law will survive that challenge. I understand uh, why they're upset about the changes, but the reality is uh, we don't have a choice in terms of ensuring that costs are under control for British Columbians. Uh, the system that we put forward uh, is, uh, in terms of the limits on pain and suffering awards, uh, consistent with initiatives that have been taken across Canada and upheld in other court decisions. The Civil Resolution Tribunal has been tested before and upheld by the courts as an appropriate way for British Columbians to access justice on other issues. We have confidence in them being able to handle it, that it's lawful, and beyond that, that it's very good policy because it will prevent the need for a 40% uh, car insurance increase in premiums for British Columbians. So confident, Smitty, that the government can handle this, that uh, the lawsuit won't win, that it's, um, you know, it's been challenged in other provinces and BC is the last one to come up with this cap here. And so they're OK. I don't know. Do you get do you get, you get a sense that people are upset by this cap uh, or really even understand it and be that there's any sympathy for these trial lawyers out there. Well, on this one, I start getting a little bit of deja vu because I've been around this place for so long. You start to see stories sometimes repeat themselves uh, just with new new names in place in place. This one reminds me of 20 years ago in the 1990s when the NDP were in power at that time, Glenn Clark was the premier. The government of the day tried to bring in no-fault insurance. Similar situation where they said they wanted to crack down on, on all the money being paid out to lawyers and these very hefty uh, court-ordered payouts to people injured in auto crashes. At that time, it, now, that system would have severely curtailed the ability of someone to go to court and get compensation for an injury suffered in a car crash. There was a fierce backlash on this at the time, and not only from the lawyers. I mean, the lawyers were certainly upset back then, too, just like they're upset today. The difference back then that I see from the, and the situation now is back then you had a, a major mobilization of disabled British Columbians. So all the major groups that represented disabled people in BC, including people who've been injured in a car crash, they end up in a wheelchair, or they've got a head injury, that kind of thing. Very, very angry and upset about what the government was doing in the 1990s. And the government backed down and they scrapped uh, no-fault insurance. Now you fast forward 20 years, the government's doing something similar. It's, it's certainly not no-fault what they're bringing in, but they're bringing in these caps on the maximum amount you can get for pain and suffering if you're injured in a crash, $5,500. The average payout for a minor injury in an auto accident was 30000 Sometimes it goes a heck of a lot higher than that. So the government is saying this is how we can save a whole lot of money and put out the dumpster fire at ICBC. I don't see the same backlash this time because one of the things that we don't see is we do not see the angry uh, attacks from the major groups in British Columbians that represent disabled people. Most of them, most of these groups now are kind of pretty quietly on the sideline. David Eby's done a pretty good job in consulting with them beforehand and bringing in uh, uh, reforms at the same time to increase the amount of money that's available to treat people injured in car crashes. So things like physiotherapy, massage therapy, uh, that kind of thing. If you are injured, they've increased the amount of money available for that. 
So I think the government so far has been pretty smart that the way they've packaged and handled this, I don't think the lawyers are going to win this lawsuit. I, 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 I mean, I'm not a lawyer like Eby is, but I tend to agree with him that a lot of these kind of caps and limits on these payouts have been brought in in other provinces. They've been challenged in other provinces and they've stood up uh, to court challenges. So we'll see if, you know, maybe they can't, maybe they, the lawyers can beat the government in court on this. I don't think so, though. Seems, un- seems unlikely, but, uh, you know, neither of us are lawyers, but it does seem unlikely based on other provinces. Yeah. I think more likely will be that this is the first of many court rulings on this cap. And we've seen in Alberta and other provinces that all the lawyers, there's a, a new cottage industry of lawyers is created here. And that's not so much the personal injury lawyers of the past, but the lawyers who argue that your minor injury a year from now or months from now is not actually minor. You don't fall under the cap because the cap is very prescriptive. You actually have some, you know, obscure new injury that is never written down by the government and therefore you're out of the cap. And we saw that in Alberta TMJ, this jaw issue. Suddenly it wasn't written specifically in their cap and it became, as EB says, the capital in Alberta of TMJ injuries. And so I think we'll see a lot of that, a lot of legal challenges, a lot of um, you people trying to get outside of the cap and government may have to come back here at some point and change the regulations and law to encapsulate all of the different uh, things that are now outside of the minor cap. The big one being concussions are considered minor, but if your symptoms persist after four months, um, they're not minor. And also mental health issues, so post-traumatic stress or anxiety or whatever, uh, those are also minor unless they continue for four months. That's, that's the one where I think the government is some a little bit vulnerable on this one is that for people who suffer a head injury, a concussion, uh, even a brain injury, a um, a psychological injury, like let's say post-traumatic stress disorder after a, a, a horrifying accident or something, and people say that they're, they have psychological Im- uh, impairment uh, many months after a crash, the government says that these will be listed as minor injuries, but could be reclassified later as a major injury if symptoms persist uh, longer beyond a prescribed period of several months. So, you know, you might see lawyers arguing for their clients that my client was unfairly categorized as suffering a minor injury when in fact it's a major injury. But overall, you know, the gov- what the government's trying to do here is save money. And EB has said that this will save $1 billion a year, mm-hmm. which is an extraordinary amount of money. And that the government intends to turn around and stop the bleeding at ICBC in one year, right? Like they're lo- ICBC is losing what over a billion bucks a year, and the government says that with these reforms, with big ones kicking in in the fall too, that they can save a billion bucks and turn ICBC around in a year. This I gotta see. <laughs> I don't think I'm not sure you can pull that off. No, I I don't think so either. And I and I talked to David Eby in advance of these these caps. And he had a very interesting new line that he's brought out, which is that the boat, ICBC's boat is leaking. And this step, this cap is going to patch the leak long enough, long enough for us to have a discussion about the future of ICBC. He can't discuss it while the boat is sinking. And this idea of discussing the future of ICBC, I wonder where we're going to go with that. I think that if this cap 
combined with the changes to driver rate risks in September, which is a whole other issue, all your free crash and how you're deemed a risky driver. If that doesn't solve the financial crisis, I can see round three of ICBC reforms coming next year. Uh, and, oh, brother, those are going to be even more uh, controversial than well, these ones. And you're starting to get a sense maybe that could be back on the table. Well, remember what we talked about last week and the politics of this, because you've got liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson at the same time saying that maybe it's time to take a look at private auto insurance in BC and that British Columbians should have more choice in auto insurance. Now, when you try to pin Wilkinson down on precisely what he means in his policy promise from the Liberals, he starts getting evasive and a little vague. But I think what the Liberals are trying to capitalize here on is if people are angry about the amount of money they're paying for their car insurance, if they can convince them that a Liberal government could make car insurance cheaper for you if they bring in uh, more private insurance options, they're they're wondering if that's a political winner for them. So this is a tough nut to crack for the NDP for sure. I think EB tip overall has done a pretty good job on it so far, but the proof's going to be in the pudding, as they say. If ICBC a year from now is still losing all that money after he promised to clean it up, yeah. then it could become a bigger problem. Yeah, get into crash position at that point because yeah. we're going to be into big changes. Uh, another issue this week in the legislature, the sudden death of BC's conflict commissioner, Paul Fraser, who passed away after a brief illness uh, on the weekend, uh, caught a lot of MLAs here by surprise. Paul Fraser was in his third term. He was universally uh, respected by MLAs, and he had gone through some controversial files, Christy Clark, David Eby, all sorts of big cases, and he had the respect of everyone in the House. Let's hear Andrew Wilkinson, the liberal leader who was a personal friend of Paul Fraser, uh, give his tribute in the House here. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. And there's a term in our world that has fallen into disuse, and it is a gentleman. And Paul Fraser, throughout his career and in his time here, was a gentleman. I knew him well in legal practice in Vancouver, where his reputation was of integrity, professionalism, humanity, and pragmatism. He brought those skills here. He served this institution well. His job was to maintain the integrity of all of us and the institution, and he did that. We all owe him a great debt of thanks, and we will miss him. So, yeah, you heard this a lot about Paul Fraser, a gentleman, um, someone who had integrity and professionalism. Uh, he was lauded by a lot of MLAs in the House. The question now, I guess, is what to do with that position. The Act doesn't anticipate. I think this is the first independent watchdog who's ever died in office, uh, and the Act doesn't anticipate that. So what's probably going to happen is the NDP cabinet will appoint a new interim conflict commissioner, and then there'll be a committee struck to to set a, a new one eventually as well. But certainly a big name in BC politics. The only, only the third conflict commissioner in BC's history uh HAD Oliver and the legendary Ted Hughes Ted so Hughes. that's quite a group yeah. of quite a group of uh, alumni there yeah it was shocking to hear to hear that he had passed away i knew he was sick um one of the reasons one of the reasons i knew he was sick was uh, Ravi Kalon who was a NDP MLA you remember the liberals had accused him of being in a conflict of interest sitting on the taxi uh the the ride sharing committee when his father uh owned a taxi cab and Kalon had to submit a letter to Paul Fraser asking for a, a ruling on that. And I remember going back to Ravi Kalon a couple of weeks later saying, did you ever get that review? And that's when I heard that the, the commissioner was sick. But 
I guess he obviously, you know, people didn't realize he was as sick as he was and he, he's passed away. A nice, a nice man. I, I did not know him that well. I've had a few conversations with him over the years, but not many, but certainly a, uh, a very respected guy here. So our There's, sympathies to his family and his friends. It's an interesting job, conflict commissioner. And yeah. Vaughn uh, had a great, uh, our colleague Vaughn Palmer had a great line in the column. Uh, where the job of the conflict commissioner was described by, I think, H.A.D. Oliver in the past to, to, uh, to catch the crap before it hits the fan. That's part of the job <laughs> is to help MLAs understand their disclosure and their conflicts before it becomes a massive burning scandal. And, uh, it's certainly a, an important watchdog position here for yes. sure. Um, we, a couple things before we end the podcast here and, and probably what's going to be a recurring uh, line, we say, no matter how bad things get in BC politics, at least you're not Justin Trudeau, <laughs> because it seems like every week we end up talking about how much worse things get on this SNC-Lavalin issue for the federal liberal Smitty. We got big developments again, Jody Wilson-Raybould out yeah. Uh, and Jane Philpott out of the federal liberal caucus. What do you make of what's going on there? Some people were looking at this and saying that Trudeau didn't really have any choice because after Jody Wilson-Raybould had questioned the government's handling of SNC-Lavalin and she had tape recorded a conversation uh, between herself and Michael Wernick, who is the former clerk of the Privy Council, who's essentially the top uh, unelected uh, civil servant in the government who has since resigned over this whole thing as well. Um the the existence of that tape recording came out in the last couple of weeks. Uh, the the recording itself was released, and Wilson Raybould said that she recorded the conversation in order to eff- effectively protect herself because she felt like she was being hounded and browbeaten on this SNC Lavalin file. But Trudeau cited that as one of the reasons why uh, that she had breached this level of trust between herself and her colleagues, and that she had to go. He also removed Jane Philpott, who had been a very respected cabinet minister in his cabinet. She had criticized, she had resigned from cabinet and criticized the government's handling of SNC-Lavalin. So I've heard some arguments saying that Trudeau didn't really have any choice, that he had to get rid of them. On the other hand, maybe it backfires on him if this turns them into martyrs and there are people who stood up for what they believe in, didn't do anything wrong, trying to do the right thing and standing up from a position of integrity. And then they end up getting booted out of the liberal caucus as a result that maybe that actually increases the public sympathy and support for them that they had previously and that this gets worse for Trudeau. He's obviously hoping it goes away. He's been hoping that for a couple of months now. It doesn't seem to have any sign of going away with an election looming in the fall. So we'll see what happens here. One, one of the things I'm looking to looking toward is what happens to Jody Wilson-Raybould. Now, she's an, she's an independent MLA now, or MP, I should say, for Vancouver Granville. Does she run again in the fall? And if she does, does she run as an independent or does she join another political party? You can bet uh, the Green Party of Canada, the NDP, even the Conservatives are probably thinking, boy, if we could get her to come over to our side, that'd be awesome. And does, does it hurt the Liberals in BC as well? I mean, she's such a big name here. She has so many ties in, especially the First Nations community. How badly does that damage other liberal ridings in BC for Justin Trudeau? I think it certainly doesn't help because I think her support goes beyond even like uh, the indigenous community in BC. I think a lot of people are looking at her as saying like she didn't do anything wrong. She was standing up from a position of integrity, saying and I'm not going to give a get out of jail free card to to SNC Lavalin, who's a a Quebec liberal, a Quebec based liberal connected company. 
facing serious criminal corruption charges and I'm not I'm just not going along with this, which I think is a, to a lot of in a lot of people's mind is is is, a, is an honorable position to take. And for this to happen to her this way, uh, I think it maybe potentially even increases the support, public support that she receives. So I don't think it I don't think it helps Trudeau at all. On the other hand, um, I don't count Trudeau out at all in this in this election in the fall. I mean, you know, this is a guy who still gets big crowds. We've seen big crowds out for him recently in British Columbia during some visits. His opponents are, are not the most compelling political figures themselves. Andrew Andrew Scheer, the leader of the Conservative Party, leading the polls right now, but hasn't exactly turned the world on fire. Uh, so, you know, it is. I think it's possible that Trudeau wins again, but maybe with minority government this time. This is going to be an intriguing federal election in the fall. Yeah, sure. some, some interesting liberal lines now, you know, somehow the... The, the tape recording of the conversation has become the unconscionable, egregious violation. Not the whole, you know, trying to get a giant company off of criminal corruption charges, larger issue. It's, oh my goodness, how could someone tape a phone call? I feel obliged to let you know at this late hour, Smitty, I am also taping this phone call. You're taping this? Oh my oh, God. Yeah, so it's going to be on the internet. But I just, <laughs> I mean, that's all the MLAs and the liberal, or all the MPs and the liberal side have the same talking point now that how, this breach of trust and taping a call is just, you can't come back from it. And I guess in, to put it in another way, we know from watching politics that when you get dissent in the backbench of a caucus, it's like starting a fire and it spreads very quickly. And the liberals probably had to do this. And from a political management point of view, the other parties, despite what they're saying, would have done this as well, because it's always the backbench that brings the leader down. Just the mini revolt, the simmering of dissent that begins to grow. And, uh, I, you know, I just don't see how they could have kept them in. Um, but the use of the tape recording as the justification is kind of ridiculous. Now, here's the other thing I got to bring up. And I got to mention this name, Christy Clark. Oh, 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 so I remember you made a prediction in your our year ender. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. Do that. <laughs> Wait a I minute. Do that. There's no Wait audio. A minute. There's Speaking no... of the tapes, check the tapes. <laughs> I think you predict. Didn't you predict a Christy Clark comeback? Possibly. I said she would flirt with returning on. The Does she federal... run for the liberals now in this riding? <laughs> I don't. Thinks. Why would Christy Clark want to be? But look how look at the way she's been speaking out on this file, though. Isn't that that's, interesting? Like that she is, has done. Christy Clark has done a lot of TV interviews in favor of the liberal position, defending Trudeau. Yeah, right. Defending Justin Trudeau and attack effectively attacking Jody Wilson Raybould and saying Trudeau was doing the right thing, standing up for jobs. She doesn't like Trudeau though, and I just the idea of her. But she's a federal being liberal. subservient to his leadership and getting elected and going to serve. Him? I mean, I I just, I don't know. I've always, I like that. I've always described it as they're very similar in, in a lot of ways. It's like watching two magicians duel. Poof, the fireworks <laughs> are flying everywhere. They know each other's tricks and, and games. And I just can't imagine her just being a random MP for Justin Trudeau. I could see her being a leader, maybe a leader of a party um, or I don't know, a, there's a, some Senate seats that are open. Uh, um, that's been brought up as well. Yeah. Uh, even though she doesn't like the Senate and spoken out against it. Um, but ah, I don't know. Let the speculation begin, though. We'll keep an eye on it for we sure. we got to keep an eye on it. Uh, in future podcasts, we want to let you know that we're open to hearing questions from you, our loyal listeners. Thanks so much for listening to us. We really appreciate it and downloading us every week. If you have a question for Smitty or I about anything to do with BC politics. You've always been wondering, why does this happen? How does this work? What do you think of so-and-so? What's the what's your prediction on this? And we can get it wrong and 
tape record ourselves <laughs> sounding like fools, getting it wrong. We're happy to take questions and we're going to start doing that on a weekly basis. So you can follow us both on Twitter. You can read us in the province and the sun. Our email addresses are at the bottom of the story. You can send us a message on Twitter or an email. Then we'll pick out a couple questions uh, every week uh, and uh, chat a bit about them as well. So just one way to engage with us. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or the RSS feeds are online for your other podcast players. And uh, make sure you listen every week. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next week.